1: to patch your Zeisel firewalls, nuisance-level hacktivism in the hybrid war, Sweden and Finland move closer to NATO membership, Conti calls for rebellion in Costa Rica. Is pay or grief just rebranded doppelpamer? Anonymous action in Sri Lanka seems indiscriminate and counterproductive. Dinah Davis from Arctic Wolf examines cybersecurity for startups. Rick Howard looks at two-factor authentication. And a judge says cryptocurrency can't be used to evade sanctions. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, May 16th, 2022. Zeisel has released patches for its firewall versions affected by the OS command injection vulnerability CVE-2022-3525, which Rapid7 discovered and reported. Yesterday, Shadow Server reported that its scans had found the affected devices to be widespread. They saw at least 20,000 of the potentially affected Zeisel firewall models accessible on the Internet, primarily in the EU, in France, and Italy. NSA cybersecurity director Joyce retweeted Shadow Servers' findings with a terse comment. He said, Exploitation underway. Check your Zisl firewall version and patch. The mauling that Russia's 74th Motorized Rifle Brigade took during its failed assault crossing of the Donetsk on May 11th may be having a more general effect on Russian popular morale— The New York Times reports that pro-Russian military bloggers, some of them embedded with Russian forces, have grown sharply critical of Russian military leadership. The Times writes, Perhaps most striking, the Russian battlefield failure is resonating with a stable of pro-Russian war bloggers, some of whom are embedded with troops on the front line who have reliably posted to the social network Telegram with claims of Russian success and Ukrainian cowardice. The Institute for the Study of War wrote Saturday that "...the commentary by these widely read mill bloggers may fuel burgeoning doubts in Russia about Russia's prospects in this war and the competence of Russia's military leaders. The departures from a consistent line of Russian success and inexorable victory are striking. So far, there aren't corresponding departures from the official line," That Russia's special military operation is a just cause. The cyber phases of the hybrid war have recently been marked for the most part by nuisance level hacktivism. Both sides have developed characteristic attack styles. Anonymous, hacking in the Ukrainian interest under its OpRussia hashtag, continues to dox its targets and dump the stolen data online at DDoS Secrets. On the Russian side, the hacktivist style appears to have become distributed denial-of-service attacks, directed most recently at prestige targets in retaliatory attacks. Last week, the pro-Russian hacktivist group styling itself Legion, a Killnet affiliate, called for cyberattacks against the Eurovision Song Contest, which had excluded Russian artists from the competition as a gesture of disapproval of Russia's war. Reuters reports that Italian police successfully disrupted the attack, which was itself intended to interfere with voting. Ukraine's Kalush Orchestra won the contest, in case you missed it, with their performance of Stefania. Finland's and Sweden's interest in NATO membership has attracted Russian comment, some of it grandiose and violent with talk of annihilation, forward deployment of tactical nuclear weapons to deter NATO aggression, and so on. And all of it, even the most measured expressions, have been strongly unfavorable. Neither the alliance nor the two prospective new members seem likely to be dissuaded. But the two Nordic countries and NATO are preparing for the possibility of Russian cyber attacks with realistic caution, The Hill reports. Major General Kirillo Budanov, chief of Ukraine's military intelligence service, told Sky News Saturday that Russia's president was suffering from cancer and that his illness would provide a covering justification for a coup that would remove Mr. Putin from power. The Major General said, It will eventually lead to the change of leadership of the Russian Federation. This process has already been launched and they are moving into that way. When asked by Sky News if that meant a coup was in progress, General Budanov said, Yes, adding, They are moving in this way, and it is impossible to stop it. It's impossible to evaluate the truth of his claims or the soundness of his assessment. President Putin has been rumored to be in poor health, but General Budanov's widely reported remarks are the only openly circulating reports of an imminent coup in Moscow. Conti is calling for rebellion in Costa Rica. Unless, of course, Costa Rica's government pays Conti the ransom the gang demanded in its ransomware attack earlier this month, SC Magazine reports. A revolution in the interest of Conti is, of course, unlikely in the extreme, but what's Conti got to lose in asking for one? Investigation of the ransomware attack against the city government of Thessaloniki, Greece, last July, indicates that the attackers, pay or grief... We're not, in fact, a new gang, but simply a rebranding of Doppelpamer, Darktrace researchers report. Anonymous hasn't confined its activities to Op Russia. It's also declared its support of anti-government protesters in Sri Lanka by declaring cyberwar against the government. But, the website Rest of World reports, the effects of the action may not be entirely welcomed by those it's intended to support – the anarchist collective conducted distributed denial-of-service attacks against websites operated by the Ceylon Electricity Board, the Sri Lanka Police, and the Department of Immigration and Emigration. The hacktivists also doxed Sri Lanka Scholar, a private portal connecting students to universities, and the Sri Lanka Bureau of Foreign Employment. In both cases, the names and email addresses of ordinary Sri Lankans were exposed— increasing their risk of falling victim to cybercrime. And finally, any lingering sense of legal immunity cryptocurrency users may retain experienced further erosion on Friday. The Washington Post reports that U.S. Magistrate Judge Zia M. Faraque of Washington, D.C. explained his approval of a Justice Department criminal complaint against a U.S. citizen who stands accused of sending over $10 million in Bitcoin to a virtual currency exchange in a country under comprehensive U.S. sanctions. The investigation is still in progress, which is why details of the complaint and the identity of the defendant remain under seal. But the judge wants to make two points. Cryptocurrency isn't untraceable, and sanctions law applies to cryptocurrency as much as it does to more traditional forms of cash. And I am pleased to be joined once again by Rick Howard. He is the CyberWire's Chief Security Officer and also our Chief Analyst. Rick, always great to have you back. Hey, Dave. So on this season of CSO Perspectives, which is, of course, over on the pro side of the CyberWire, you have been breaking out your Rick the Toolman toolbox uh, to help understand some of the mechanics of things like S-bombs and single sign-on, And for this week, you are tackling two-factor authentication. So what do you got in store for us?
2: Yeah, so while we're working on this episode, I discovered that we've come a long way from when the first commercial second-factor token device, you know, built by a company called Security Dynamics Technologies in the mid-1980s, And Hmm. to the AT&T patenting the idea of second-factor authentication in the mid-1990s, you know, all the rules that we just kind of throw off today like everybody knows them. Like, you have to pick two or three factors, something you have, like a smartphone, something you are, like a fingerprint, or something you know, like a password.
1: Yeah, you know, I know what you mean, and and I think back like when I was growing up, my father uh, was a realtor, and uh, that was his profession. And so, at some point along the way, the the local board of realtors decided to have, to adopt. Multi-factor authentication, (laughs) good for them. uh, uh, Yeah, but like this was I. I, I've been trying to think back on it. All I remember is like this little LCD screen on this little device that had this rotating series of numbers and codes that would just keep changing. Yeah, right. Like it was this little eye candy kind of thing. It must have been before USB, so I don't know. This thing just plugged into a serial port. I don't remember but what i do remember is that it was a pain in the butt and it wasn't around very long like i think <laughs> i think the users revolted and and uh, it did not stick around and i think that's a really interesting thing like in those early days those systems were hard to use and they were mostly reserved for protecting like you know highly secure things like you know spies and yeah. nuclear power plants yeah. and things james like bond that stuff. but yeah james bond yeah stuff. but These days, I mean, it seems like if nothing else, we have a lot of options, you know, things like SMS and email authentication, um, push notifications. I mean, even stuff like today's uh, just universal second factor keys like the YubiKeys, you know, come a long way. I have to say, though, you know, especially over on the Hacking Humans podcast, Joe and I talk about SMS and email. It seems like all the time when I'm reading cybersecurity news or Joe and I are talking about it over there. It always comes up that maybe SMS second factor authentication isn't everything that it should be.
2: Is that wrong? <laughs> well, let me put it this way, Dave. Yes, you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, fair, fair. well, thanks for coming on the show, Rick. Uh, <laughs> well, go on, go on. All right. So, I I just want to be clear here. Any form of second or two factor authentication is exponentially better than just using your user ID and password to log in somewhere. So, has SMS authentication uh, been defeated in the wild? Yep, absolutely it has. Is it pretty good for run-of-the-mill internet surfing, like, you know, logging into Audible or your Twitter account? Yes, absolutely it is. So, you may not want to use SMS authentication, you know, to protect those nuclear codes you were talking about (laughs) before, but for normal internet stuff, it's pretty good, right? So, yeah. In this CSO Perspectives episode, we talk about how each of the current set of two-factor authentication tools, how they work, and we're going to put them on a scale from least secure to most secure, but all of them are better than just user ID and passwords.
1: All right. Good to know. Good to know. So before I let you go today, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that your Word Notes podcast has
2: hit a bit of a milestone this week. That's right. We're publishing our 100th episode. And I have to tell you, I've learned more about cybersecurity uh, than I have in my 35 years of doing this stuff as a career professional. Because when you're tasked to explain highly complex or technical words and phrases in just five minutes, like (laughs) non-fungible tokens, common vulnerabilities and exposures, the Shields Up program, and Pegasus, just, you know, to name four— you might learn a thing or two. so with this week's phrase, the diamond model, we will have produced Hmm. 100 of these shows. And I'm very happy to have met that milestone.
1: All right. Well, congratulations. 100 is a a big deal. Thank you, sir. Well, Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Again, uh, you can check out CSO Perspectives over on CyberWire Pro. You can find that on the CyberWire website. Rick, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. And joining me once again is Dinah Davis. She is the VP of R&D operations at Arctic Wolf. Dinah, always great to welcome you back to the show. You know, I I was thinking recently, um, actually, my my son is a budding entrepreneur, and he and some of his friends are starting up a new business. And it got me thinking about, you know, what are some of the things I can do as a helpful dad in terms of uh, providing him guidance when it comes to the cybersecurity provisions that they're going to need. And uh, I thought this would be an interesting topic for you and I to touch on. What are your thoughts here?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, you're right on because, you know, there's been at least 42% of small businesses uh, attacked in the last year, right? So it's it's no longer a thing that just like big enterprise really needs to worry about. It's, it's even the small guys really need to look at it, right? So mm. um, to help myself remember, I've called it the four P's that people should think about the four P's. So your perimeter, patch, your people, and protect. Um, So (laughs) for your perimeter, you're looking at making sure you have, you know, a decent firewall in place. Um, If you're a small company, you can buy some that are out of the box that are quite decent um, and just set them up. You know, you can just stop the bad traffic right away. Patching Patching, 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 patching. So always knowing what's in your system and keeping your, like even in a small business, that might be you have four machines, just always keep them up to date, right? That's the easiest thing you can do with little to no security knowledge whatsoever is to always keep your software of your key tools that you're using up up to date. People comes from user awareness training. Making sure you know about you know, we've all talked about this so many times, but it is it is really very, very important that people are aware of the types of attacks. Because you're just as good as your weakest link, and usually your weakest link is going to be your people. Um, mm-hmm. Social engineering attacks are quite effective. They happen often. I always recommend if you can get training that comes in like three to five-minute bursts every few weeks, then – that's going to help it's going to keep things top of top of mind right um and then finally i had to stretch for the fourth p here but protect which really means mfa multi-factor authentication if there's mm. you know anything from a, an actual security thing to put in place for your company, it's multi-factor authentication. It pretty much shuts down most um, email-based uh, phishing attacks, right? They're trying to get your password and then reuse your password everywhere else. As long as you have a second or a third source of, of authentication that's not a password, then that's really you know gonna help you out. I don't know. Can your son? You think those any of those would be good for for your son and his his company?
1: I think so. I mean, I I think uh, you know the the challenge with multifactor, of course, is that it does introduce a little bit of friction. And uh, you know, young, excited entrepreneurs, the last thing they want to do is slow down for something. <laughs> but uh, so you have to make the case that it is in their best interest. You know, I'm curious. Um, we have these services available today that are primarily cloud-based. I'm thinking yeah. of, you know, the Googles of the world, the Microsofts of the world, where you can get pretty much everything you need to start up from a provider like that. You can get your email, you can store files, you know, all those kinds of things. For a startup, I mean, is that a good way to go? Do you, do you find that you know, to let those big companies do much of the heavy lifting for a lot of the security things? Is that a reasonable approach?
0: Yeah, I would highly recommend that. I mean, even for um, Code Like a Girl, which I run on the side and it's, you know, it's not really a for-profit thing. I have a Google business account and, you know, we... I, I have multi-factor authentication on, on the logins, on my email address, and I don't use it a lot for a lot of things. But just having that there and having a place where my files can go, you know, I am leaning on Google's security um, abilities there. And, you know, I think that's a pretty good bet To be honest, if you're, you know, it's way better than trying to roll your own or anything like that. Right. So um, especially if you're using cloud services, those doing something like that, you know, Google or Office 365 or any of the big ones. I'm not I'm not saying one is better than the other or anything like that right now. But they are spending a lot of money on security today because they're protecting a wide, wide range of people.
1: Right, right. All right, well, good advice. Dinah Davis, thanks for joining us. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at TheCyberWire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Rachel Galfin, Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karth, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Saby, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Valecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.